And now, Jalen and Jacoby. Welcome to Jalen Jacoby, the after show is presented by Hyundai. Jalen, we just watched Al Davis versus the NFL. Your quick response to the amazing film. Reminded me of my childhood a lot, seeing how football was played a lot different, a lot more physical, and how the antics of the Raiders were of legend. Being a Detroit Lions fan and a diehard, I really admired how the Raiders went about their business of toughness and their level of bravado and also seemingly to always be the thorn in the side of the NFL. And Davis embodied that like no other. Joining us right now, Jalen, the director of the film. Yes. Ken Rogers. Yes. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Of course. First of all, congratulations. How does it feel to watch it? Just to have to have it's like birthing a baby to have it be out there in the world. We're trending, Ken. I'll tell you what. It's hard as a filmmaker to not look at the little things you wish you could go back and fix uh, as a perfectionist. But when you see the response that we see and the positive response, especially from Raiders fans, uh, it's really great. Cause I think the Raiders fans thought that this was going to be a hit job, making sure that the Raiders looked bad again. And uh, I don't think that was the case. So I think they're pretty happy. Thank you for joining us, Ken. And I don't mean to be uh, this guy, but I have to ask a really important question. Okay. How in the world did you get Al Davis and Pete Rozelle in this shoot at the stadium in Vegas when they both passed away years ago? That, that was the hardest part of the film, obviously, uh, and the first decision we made. You know, we wanted to tell the story from their point of view because when you have those two characters, who cares what secondary characters have to say about the sh- the relationship i didn't want sports writers or i mean no offense sports talk people no no offense to you guys i'm just saying i didn't want i didn't want outsiders views on the relationship so uh the producers and i kept talking about i wish we could just see al and pete talk well why can't we and in the past we may have hired actors we may have just hired actors that kind of looked like them, put wigs on them and said, you play Al and you play Pete and we're going to walk around the stadium. But today technology is around this possible, at least to make them look even more like Al and Pete. And we decided, you know, this hasn't been done in sports documentaries. Let's try it. Let's go for it. Especially in the world of COVID uh, you know, let's, let's try something different uh, while we're all sitting around in our houses, unable to, to get out. So we came up with this idea um, and went to the stadium and shot body doubles Mm. uh, who had the same weight and height as Al and Pete. Then we put prosthetics on them of the top of the heads and necks. So that was part two. And then part three, the digital masks that put Al and Pete's face on them. And then part four, we wrote the dialogue, uh, Paul Camerata and Ryan Kelly, my producers, um, so that the words were accurate to what Al and Pete said at the time. And then part five, we hired impressionists mm. who sounded like Al and Pete to voice the words. So what you're looking at when you say, how did you bring Al and Pete? Well, it took five different combinations to bring together for that to happen it really wasn't just as easy as hey you you're going to be al or 
let's do this computer program. It was, it was a huge combination of factors. Well, it, it really worked. And I have a confession to make. I actually Googled to make sure that I remembered that these gentlemen were both sort of not with us anymore because watching this film, it looks so absolutely real. You did a great job with the Al Davis impressionist because he's got a very sort of unique, not just accent, but intonation of way I'm speaking. And that one was absolutely spot on. But I want to ask you as a filmmaker, like that's a big swing to take. You said it was one of the first sort of decisions you make in the middle of it. When you're in the weeds, were you ever like, man, this might not work? Uh, no, I was pretty sure it was definitely not going to work and that it was going to be an absolute failure. I mean, I, I would, it was close to 100 percent. Yeah, this is this is going to end badly. Um, you know, th there's a there's a little bit of that in every film. But this one, there were some scary moments. Um, it was the last thing we had to do because we had to have the film all edited mm. and written and figured out with the holes of where these guys would appear. And then we went to Vegas in late November to film this and we needed to deliver the film a month later. And so if it didn't work, I, I have no idea what we were gonna do. Um, so everyone was quite nervous. Um, and I, uh, we, we hit some major roadblocks um, <laughs> that, that we overcame, which was um, a credit to the people working on the show. And if it, 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 I, there was a lot of sleepless nights here uh, at the Rogers household, I can tell you that. And as an amazing uh, organization as the Raiders are, they were able to garner fans from near and far, not only based on their logo, which is awesome and the best, but just the rebel that Al Davis always was and his trademark just win baby is something that everyone can relate to. Can you tell me more about a young Al Davis trying to sell scouting reports to pro football coaches? <laughs> uh, he was a guy who I think always wanted to prove himself. Um, he grew up in a house uh, with a brother who he was always in competition with. So I think that had a lot to do with it, the brotherly competition. He always had to seek approval from his father. I think that had a lot to do with it. And he found it through sports, yet he wasn't a, a, an incredible athlete. So he developed this mind for sports. And more than the mind, the willpower that he would do anything to win that he would take as much time as it as it as was needed uh go to any length and as he says he he gave up a lot in his life i mean his entire life became about building the raiders um he became a coach a scout a commissioner all of this before becoming the owner i mean when he became an owner, he wasn't just a guy who had some money. In fact, he, he didn't come from the money that is required to buy a team. He came from a, the, the coaching end. It's sort of, it's, uh, I guess it's like, uh, you know, Larry Bird coming from the playing end and, and going to the coaching end. You know, the players, when they walked into the, to the building, were like, oh, that's Al Davis. And it wasn't because he was the owner. It was because he was already known as an incredible coach. 
he already had the reputation regardless of what the Raiders did from then on. He had the reputation as a coach down pat. And then he went on to build the Raiders, which by 1983, when they win their third Super Bowl, they are by far the best team in the NFL when it comes to winning percentage. Now, the Steelers had won four Super Bowls, so easy argument that they've been better. But by 1983, Al has a pretty good argument that over the first 15 years of the NFL, AFL after merging, that his team is the best team. And, and that's because of that childhood ambition that he grew up with that, you know, drives a lot of us, but some of us, it burns out and it never burnt him out. It, it kept him, kept his flame alive. And I, I, I love one thing about this film is it's sort of like, we all know the just win baby and we see the face and we know that the successes of the Raiders, but the things I didn't know about Al Davis is he went to Syracuse and just kind of like stalked the football team. Like it was like, he wasn't on the team. He would just like be around the team. And then he would fill out scouting reports and go to these like NFL um, uh, for lack of a better term, sort of like um, conferences and try to sell the scouting reports. Like there's a lot of real elbow grease and hustle and grind that went into his story that sort of manifested itself when he became a prominent figure with the Raiders. But one thing you touched on that I didn't realize was part of his history was the AFL NFL merger and uh, a kicker for the Bills named uh, Gogolak somehow doesn't get enough credit. Gogolak does not get enough credit for changing modern American football. But can you take us through in a little bit more detail in the film data, sort of like his role and that merger kind of being kind of step one in this tete-a-tete between him and Pete Rozelle? Yeah, so Al Al Davis was the commissioner of the American Football League. So uh, he was the equivalent of Pete Rozelle of the national football league. And they of course didn't uh, really see eye to eye uh, from the start, but they had agreed that they wouldn't try to take each other's players from one league and take them and steal them from another league. Um, And Al felt like that uh, truce was broken when the NFL took Pete Gogolak um, uh, from the, uh, from the bills and signed him with the giants, I believe. And, uh, Al declared war as you would expect Al Davis to do. Um, and he decided that he was going to win at all costs. And he went to war signing every high regarded, uh, college graduate that he could every uh, incredible prospect that he could every uh, free agent that he could um, Joe Namath, you know, the, 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 the big names that came into the AFL that, that changed the game uh, on that side of the ledger. And it became much more even keeled where the AFL was catching up to the NFL in quality and contract rights and television uh, rights. And, a merger was starting being talked about between the owners. Al Davis was left out of those talks on purpose, even though he was the commissioner. Wow. He was left out because his viewpoint was, we will never merge. I will crush them and defeat them. I'll win. Let them be destroyed and we'll be the one that's left and maybe they'll come crawling to us and I'll set the terms of surrender. 
instead of merging. He didn't want peace. He wanted victory. So they went behind his back and merged without permission or knowledge of the commissioner of the league. And of course, Pete becomes the commissioner of the new league called the NFL rather than the AFL. Um, and from that point, you know, there's some hard feelings there, I think, pretty naturally. Absolutely. So, however, Al Davis and his Raiders, they weren't a success story at first. How much did it wear on Davis to lose to those notable Pittsburgh Steelers and Vikings teams early on? Yeah, you know, they the losses were tough and they were exacerbated by the fact that there was some pretty crazy endings. And all you have to think about is the immaculate reception, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that's the, that's the famous one. Certainly some some others, but when you think of the immaculate reception, which is, you know, perhaps the greatest ending, uh, certainly the most controversial ending in NFL history, history, maybe in sports history, it's insane. And the Steelers uh, won the game. And I don't know that to this day, many of the Raiders would accept that uh, ruling. Hold on. We have to discuss this. We have to discuss this because, you know, you work work in the NFL films and I've always relived this as a (laughs) great play by Franco Harrison, the Steelers. I've never seen this side of it. I've never seen the it was a double tap pass and there was an mm-hmm. illegal block, which was insignificant when you see it on the replay. And, and then there's this phone call. So like, again, like, like I, I didn't watch this game live. So I've always relived it as a celebration of this amazing play, but watching this film, I was like, Oh, there's a, another side to this coin that is saying that the whole thing shouldn't have happened. There was illegal and it was complete BS and that the Raiders were robbed. So just like imagine that Al Davis, where he has many lawyers, imagine you are one of his many lawyers and you have to make the case that the immaculate reception was actually illegal. What is your case? Oh, I mean, you, you can start by did the ball touch the ground, um, which would nullify the pass. Um, you can start with at the, at the time it was ruled incomplete. So mm, really? why could, you know, it was ruled differently on the field. Um, and then it was ruled a touchdown after discussion um, in the dugout. Well, on the phone huh. and there was no replay um at the time um the clipping there was penalties on the play that weren't called which you know penalties are missed i'm not sure that argument holds up um and there's a really good argument that the ball was uh you know hit by um uh, the wrong team in the famous bounce back to Franco Harris, which would make it a double touch, uh, illegal double touch. Um, and so we've done entire films actually on the Immaculate Reception. Really the best place uh, to, to watch now, Peyton Manning did a whole episode of Peyton's Places on ESPN Plus about it. I mean, it's one of those plays that I think a hundred years from now, we will be making films about, was it a touchdown or was it not a touchdown? 
Um, it, it is an insane play. And had it been once, I think Al Davis would have said, hey, that's, that's a bunch of bull. But he saw that type of thing, even if in his mind happened over and over, and he felt like this is no longer a coincidence. I think the league is doing this to me and the Raiders because we're the Raiders. And um, I think he felt that all the way to the end. All you have to do is look at the tuck rule mm. and how Al Davis felt about the tuck rule against the Patriots. Yes. It's exact. It's exactly how he felt about the immaculate reception, it, which is, no one had heard of this rule until you needed to screw the Raiders. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And as somebody who loves the NFL, like those teams, they had the, the logo with is iconic with the patch on the eye, and Ted the Stork Hendricks. And you got John Madden on the sideline, Kenny the Stakes, Kenny the Snake Stabler. Um, and we just talked about the macular reception, but this movie actually wasn't much about football strategy or roster building. It was about these personalities. Why did you make that decision? Because the football aspect of it um, wasn't really one that Pete Rozelle fought on. That wasn't one of the battlefields that Pete Rozelle fought on. Although Al Davis would say he influenced the games uh, that were important against him. Their battles were philosophical in nature about the direction of the National Football League. This was, this was a philosophical argument about how the National Football League should be run as a business, not as a sport. And you had one person who felt like it should be collaborative in Pete Rozelle, that we should do at all times what's best for the collective. And if he walked in the hallway with you, he would put his arm around you and make sure that everyone finished at the same time at the end of the hallway. Al Davis was the type of guy, if he walked into the hallway at the same time as you, he would make sure he would get to the door before you because he saw everything as comp competition. And he saw the league as a winner-take-all battle royale. And he said, I, I want what's best for the Raiders. And if everyone else wants what's best for their teams, let them try to get what's best for them. But I want to get what's best for the Raiders. And it's almost like a, a governmental federal versus state argument. Mm. You know, should should the rights be with the overall federal level or the individual states? Al wanted to have a new stadium because he thought it was best for the Raiders because other teams were getting new stadiums. And he felt, hey, the players are going to go to other teams because they're getting more revenue from these luxury suites that I don't have. So they're going to be able to pay players more. Well, I, I, I want to stay competitive. I want to win Super Bowl. So I want a new stadium too. I want to move because Oakland's not going to give me a new stadium. 
And the collective said, no. And he said, well, to heck with that. <laughs> and he moved any, and he decided to announce a move anyway. And you had these incompatible looks that had nothing to do with the actual game, but how the business was run of, should these be individual businesses, each of the teams, or should they be seen as a collective business, the National Football League? And it's, a, it's an argument that goes on to this day of, uh, you know, how, how do we treat this collective of uh, teams as one or as individuals? Um, and in this case, Al, Al and Pete went to court over it for many, many years. A few times they went to court. The Saddleback Inn was involved somehow. <laughs> the cousin of the owner of the Saddleback Inn and the, the offers in Anaheim and then uh, uh, forgot the name of the suburb, Irwin, <laughs> Irwindale. Irwindale. Yeah, Ir- Irwindale was involved in $10 million. And they, it was uh, it was so much fun to sort of relive that because we just remembered as football fans as, all right, they were in Oakland and then LA and then Oakland and now Vegas. It just seems like they're always on the move, but when you see how much litigation and determination from Al Davis and went into it. Now, one thing that Can you imagine you, what it would be like on Twitter today, if that happened, crazy. Yeah, it would, it, it's an owner and a commissioner. It's <laughs> like these, these, this is like one of the, the greatest rivalries in sports and it's not even between athletes. It, yeah. it, it really is, which is and why I found this film. So I guess why you will feel cons- uh, a conspiracy theory happening against you when it seems like these unique plays happen to your team, like the immaculate reception or the tuck rule, and then all of a sudden they become new rules in the game. Like that, yeah. I, I, I understand why he felt some, some type of way about that. I would have been too, no doubt about it. I, I think Raiders fans feel that way to right now. <laughs> <laughs> to this very moment. Yes. Uh, I, they, yeah. they all feel that way. As as uh, after we get through the the court uh, case, which we all know how that ended up, there was something interesting that happened. And I, now that I've realized how you made the film, it might have been a copy that you written and then had someone read. But there's a point where Al Davis sort of takes credit for the sort of success of the National Football League, and he said he's a visionary and the the suites and the TV rights and the popularity. There's a little bit of that. That sort of I know you know the part I'm talking about. It's only about three sentences long. I believe there's a German word involved. That there's a little bit of him sort of saying, you know what? I saw this all happening. It was because of me somewhat. How much do you think that he felt that way in life? Um I think he knew he knew in his mind he was right about what was going on. And I think he uh would say. I don't need to rub it in because I told you all along I was right. He, he was oddly in my mind, not one to rub salt into the wounds. Um, And I say that because he could have really been a jerk um, after he won the the rulings much more than he was. I mean, he, he gave a little couple jabs on the courthouse step, uh, but you know, he, he beat the national football league and, and he didn't make a, a huge monster deal out of it that he could have. And when he won two super bowls while in litigation against Pete Rozelle, mm-hmm. 
he accepted the trophies in a fairly good manner um, publicly. I think inside he, he felt a little, uh, little angry. <laughs> hold on, hold on, Ken. Cause this, this is the number one question that I have for you and you know okay. what I'm going to ask. I know what you're going to you know ask. what I'm going to ask yes. in the film. They detail the trophy presentation in litigation, Pete Rosell handing the trophy to Al Davis. Apparently, according to the film, there is a prank planned by the players, but Al Davis has like a, uh, a kill switch sentence that he can enact at the time. Thank you very much. Commissioner that ends the prank. First right. of all, is this, is this how it really went? Second of all, what was the prank? So we had, uh, we had interviews written at the time inside sport magazine and other interviews that, that reported on this prank, that there was a, 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 a locker room prank planned and no one wrote what it was. Mm. Um, and we couldn't find out either. So I can't answer your second question. What it was. Here's my guess. Um, the rumor at the time was that they were going to throw Roselle out of the locker room. Wow. That once he handed over the trophy, they were going to say, all right, you're done and throw him out of the locker room. Mm. I'm not sure that would have happened. I think physically moving anyone probably would have, I, I, it feels too far for me, but we saw in the footage and, and kept in the footage that when they were chanting Pete's name at the same time, they were, talking about getting the champagne ready. And I, I, I think in my mind that they were waiting for as soon as the trophy was handed over and Pete gave the signal that they were going to spray the champagne. And instead of celebrating with themselves, they were going to douse the commissioner as a sign of disrespect. That's my uh, personal guess. I have no proof of it. But just watching the scene in the locker room, you know, we have a lot of footage of it. That's that's what I feel might have been happening. Um, but uh, none of the players will even admit that there was a there was a prank plan these days. No, I don't know what you what I, I have. I, no, we didn't have anything planned uh, at the time. There were reports of it, but now everyone seems to forget. That was a la Deion Sanders, the Pro Football Hall of Famer who also was a terrific baseball player. And when his team won the pennant, he did that to a member of the media when they came yeah. into the locker room. So I understand that visual. But the Patriots, we see their modern-day dynasty and Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft. But he wasn't always the owner. And the previous owner, Billy Sullivan, his son got into a fight with the Raiders. What happened there? Uh, so there was definitely some um, some fighting going on going on amongst the players, um, and I think what happened is that uh, the fighting on one particular uh, play came near the near the sideline, um, and it started to extend into the personnel that was along the the Raiders or along the Patriots sideline. Um, and I believe that photo of the famous photo of Matt Millen um, punching um, the, the Sullivan son, Billy Sullivan's son, came after uh, Sullivan went after Howie Long. Mm. Um, and 
failed to, to really connect or, uh, you know, maybe hit, hit some padding or a helmet, but Matt Millen took care of business uh, pretty clearly in that shot um, and, and landed a punch at the, uh, at the owner's son um, in, in a legendary fight. And I think that's, I think that's really clear evidence of the Raiders attitude, which is they, they weren't, they weren't the bad people that you, that they were sometimes cast as. And you can tell that with Matt Millen and Howie Long and, and the people that have come out of that organization. They're actually really great people, but don't mess with them. Correct. Don't, don't start. Don't start because then you, they'll, they'll answer. They'll, they'll come back. They're, they're not going to allow you to push them around. That's not the Raiders' way. Uh, they they started a lot in the seventies. They they certainly crossed the line a lot, um, and that was that was their motto. But uh, they they would never ever back down from any sort of aggression like that. Um, one I was speaking about their aggression and attitude. Um, another question I had to ask you about because I had no idea that this happened. But there was a, I believe it was a cornerback or a safety. He was in the secondary. A gentleman by the name of Atkinson, um, basically clotheslined Lynn Swan, and was was tried in court. So what was he charged with? And if you think about this, Jalen, you've probably assaulted fourteen people over the course of your career. Like, like, I, like, it just seems like a little, like a, like a, things that happen between the lines shouldn't be able to be litigated in court. So he wasn't tried. So here's what okay. happened is George Atkinson clothesline Lynn Swan. And, and it's one of the more shocking things I've ever heard is Lynn Swan's interview after that, admitting he was scared to go back out on the football field. Um, you know, that's the sort of attitude, mm-hmm. frankly, that the Raiders wanted. That's what they wanted is receivers to be a little scared and off their game when they came out on the field. That's the advantage. That's the Raiders' advantage. Absolutely. And for you young football fans, the Pittsburgh Steelers story franchise, I remember the Mean Joe Green Pepsi commercial with the little boy. I remember how Lynn Swan was a beloved figure as an athlete. The Raiders were considered the bad boys. Lyle Alzado, uh, Haynes, Lester Hayes with the stick on his hands. So that, that was their goal in Georgia's goal, Atkinson, to put fear in receivers. And so when you look at this documentary, congratulations, and how football is played now, how dramatically different does the game look? Yeah, very different. I mean, uh, the, and the, the law, even the, the talking. So this lawsuit was the, the coach, Chuck Knoll, saying, oh, we have a criminal element in the NFL and George Atkinson's part of it. That probably would, would uh, you know, that would register on Twitter today. But that became the lawsuit that there was slander against George Atkinson that went to, to court. But those sort of hits that are in this film, uh, you, you know, it, it was important for us even to, to make it clear through the, the, the lines of 
Commissioner Roselle that these were illegal hits because they are brutal. Um, you know, the hits that Atkinson and Tatum laid out in the 70s mm-hmm. um, would be the most illegal hits of a season today. Um, the, the blindside hits, the uh, leading with the head, uh, the, the, there were things that would not be allowed today. It would be instant ejections and players wouldn't want to play that way. Uh, they they wouldn't want to to play that way um, because of the advancements in uh, knowledge of um, brain injuries and, and the effects of the game. So uh, it was definitely a different different era in terms of that, and um, one that I think probably everyone is glad is glad is over um, in terms of health and safety for these players. Absolutely. And, and sort of as, as we bring this interview to a close, the, the film was brought to a close by a moment in, in Palm Springs at one of the owners' meetings when um, Roselle sort of announced that he was going to be stepping down. And then, well, I mean, we saw what happened in the film, but it just seemed to be just a, just a nice, perfect bow of a moment to sort of finish this on. We tell our audience watching right now sort of what I'm hinting at. When we saw this footage... Um, we knew the film had a climax. Mm-hmm. And the footage is Al Davis in an interview describing his long-term rival and opponent retiring from the NFL. And you would think it would be, yep, and then I won and he had to retire and walked away and I, you know, I kept going. It was instead one of the most heartfelt things I've ever heard anyone say about someone else in the, in the sporting world, but it was delivered with so much emotion from a man that you wouldn't expect it coming from about a person who was the last person you would think he would ever say it about describing their embrace physically and hug after the announcement And you realize then that these men were opponents, but maybe not enemies. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, I think that's a, it's, it's what I've been thinking about since the end of the, of making this film, especially with Al Davis, is that a lot of people think Al Davis, because he was a rebel, and because he was a contrarian, because he fought against authority, that means he's a bad guy and he's the villain. But just because you're a rebel and you fight against authority, that doesn't mean you have to be the bad guy. You can still have the, re- the respect for authority and disagree with it. You can peacefully protest. You can, you can you know, go against uh, what you uh, need to go against in a way that still shows that you're not becoming the, vi- the villain. Um, and Al Davis did that his whole life. And, and it, it reminded me that we're very easy to look at uh, opponents as villains, that someone must be the bad person here. Well, it's clearly Al Davis. He's, you know, he's the Raiders. He's the, the villain. 
But then when it comes time, you realize, no, he actually, he says out loud that there's love between him and Pete Rozelle. Well, wait, how's then how's he the villain? Um, and you realize like a lot of things in life, it's more complicated than hero and villain. It's more complicated than black and white. Uh, it's more complicated than right and wrong. And that this relationship um, as complicated as it was, um, forced the NFL forward and they paid a price in going through this war um, that pushed the NFL to the heights that it is today. And that negative that they went through ended up being a, a net positive for the rest of us. Amazing, amazing way to end the film. And uh, thank you so much for your time. Again, it's Ken Rogers, the director of the great film, Al Davis versus the NFL. I want to thank you all for watching the Jalen and Jacoby After Show presented by Hyundai. After every 30 for 30 film, find us discussing the film with the great directors like Ken Rogers. Thank you so much for your time, Ken. Good luck, Ken. We appreciate you. Thank you, guys. Yeah.